0: Coming up on Tech Nation, why our recent approach to opioid addiction has resulted in a rise of unfortunate outcomes and an interesting perspective on what we as individuals could do. Maya Salovich joins me to talk about undoing drugs, the untold story of harm reduction and the future of addiction, then Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft wants us to look in a new way at digital health. We're measuring all kinds of data about ourselves, but he wants us to shift from the quantified self to quantified health. All this, coming up on this week's Tech Nation.
1: Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. In
0: 2013, with the iPhone just six years old, futurist Alex Pang wrote The Distraction Addiction, getting the information you need and the communication you want without enraging your family, annoying your colleagues, and destroying your soul. At the same time, I noticed... Nobody complains about standing in line anymore.
2: That's true. And I think that's an example of the ways in which technologies can help make our lives easier. Though the problem that I think we often have is when those uses start to creep into other contexts, places where we should be uh, sort of paying attention to kids or people at the dinner table or our work. When you add up all the time spent interacting with devices, that comes out to about four months a year. And Granted, some of that time is, is multitasking, right? You're checking your email while you're watching TV. Um, it does not, however, include games, which, depending on who you are, can range from zero days to the whole rest of the year. But it's not just about time, of course. It's also about the number of interactions you have. Uh, or if there are lots of people who check email you know, three dozen times a day. Um, but it's also...
0: 36 times a day they check their email.
2: Yes, 36 times a day, you know, or to pull it out of a stoplight when you get bored at a meeting. Those times add up. It's really pretty amazing. But it's also about the way in which these technologies kind sort of insinuate themselves into literally our bodies. You know, there's this phenomenon called phantom cell phone syndrome, which is the feeling of your cell phone going off, you know, buzzing even though you don't have it in a pocket or on your body. Ringtones are, of course, designed to be noticed. Um, they are often designed also to sort of play in a way that interrupts your attention. This is, after all, you know, the purpose of an alarm or a ring. And the downside of that is when you're overexposed to them, when they work too effectively, they can do too good a job of breaking the flow of your attention and forcing you to spend several minutes getting back on task, even after you've uh, had maybe only a very, very short phone call.
0: I mean, you speak of the the Buddhist concept of monkey mind, everyday, undisciplined, jittery mind. Lots of people feel that way when they're off purpose. And not only that, I'm thinking of all kinds of things, and I'm feeling all kinds of things. And the feelings then take me to other places as well. Mm -hmm.
2: And I think that the idea of the monkey mind is valuable because it reminds us that this kind of problem is actually a very, very old one. You know, even though smartphones are only, what, six or seven years old now, they have in an incredibly short time gone from being novelties to being part of our everyday life. It is easy to think of the problem of electronic distraction as an incredibly new thing. But what the monkey mind, which is an ancient idea, tells us is that it's not just our devices, but ourselves that sort of are at issue. That part of what's going on is that these devices are really good at tapping into a natural ability we have to self-distract, to free-associate, to jump from one thing to another. And however... The other important thing that the long history of the monkey mind teaches us is that there are ways of dealing with the problem of self-distraction, of worldly distraction, that are very, very old. You know, Buddhism is 2,500 years old, and contemplative practices in Christianity and Islam and Judaism have developed over the course of you know, thousands of years. These problems really aren't new. and we also don't live in a world in which there are no solutions, you know, in which you have to give up the idea that you can have time to yourself, time to concentrate, time to focus, that there are ways of dealing with this that we can learn to adopt or adapt for modern purposes.
0: At the time of this 2013 interview, futurist Alec Pang was talking about his book The Distraction Addiction. He has since gone on to write Rest, How to Get More Done... By working less. So I guess this means put down your phone and take a nap. I'm all for it. I'm Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes.
1: Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.
0: From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, treating opioid addiction, why harm reduction can work, and denying safe sources of drugs can lead to dire outcomes. I speak with Maya Salovitz, the author of Undoing Drugs, then, Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent, Dr. Daniel Kraft, goes beyond this digital health gadget or that one. Imagine them all working together.
3: Technation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force
0: in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com. And now, Maya Salibitz. Well, Maya, welcome to Tech Nation.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Now, you start the book with full disclosure. I mean, in the mid-1980s, you were addicted to IV drugs, and, and we can tell the opening story if it's relevant, but I was struck by a sentence, several sentences in. Apparently, by becoming addicted, I had become a person who doesn't matter. Let's start there. How does that realization come to an addicted person?
4: Well, um, what was happening at the time was that half of New York's IV drug users were already HIV positive. And politicians were actually trying to stop people from giving us information about how to protect ourselves. And if that's not being a person who doesn't matter, the only thing we mattered for is to die as an example to children to make the drug war look good, I guess. So it was just infuriating. And as a middle-class white person, I had not really experienced that sense of you're just a throwaway person that nobody cares about.
0: And yet this is a story about how change happens and how even the smallest things we do can sometimes make a tremendous difference.
4: Yes. So what happened to me was I was visiting a friend. He was going to buy some heroin and a woman from out of town from San Francisco, was visiting him in New York. And her plan was to take him into rehab. But of course, first he wanted to have one last binge. And so he was going to buy us the heroin. And then that was what was going to happen. And she taught me how to protect myself from HIV. I didn't even know I was at risk. I was that ignorant at the time. And so she was like, look, try to avoid sharing needles, but if you can't avoid it, clean it twice with bleach and twice with water, and you will dramatically reduce your risk for getting HIV. And so as soon as she told me that, I was compulsive about doing that and also really angry about not having been given this basic information about a household cleaner that could save my life.
0: What a nice white middle-class reaction. (laughs) It's like, how dare you? (laughs) <laughs> well, you expect, and I mean, you know, you expect like, it as a member of the middle class, a white member of the middle class, you know. But. <laughs>
4: yeah, I mean, you know, I was a Columbia student. I was like, I was used to being, you know, as I was, I was um, a gifted kid in high school. I was used to being seen as somebody that was supposedly valuable to society, although I didn't feel that within myself, which was part of the cause of the addiction. But it was just astonishing to me that they could think that, A whole group of people is so worthless that we only need them to die as an example to others.
0: The mid-80s had this social crisis, of course, which intersected IV drug use and the HIV epidemic, but it wasn't just the gay population. It wasn't just... Ivy drug addicts. I mean, it even extended to just everyday teenagers experimenting. It extended to the entire population. Everyone was in a panic, and I was amazed because she told a story uh, that was from San Francisco here, and the story was of the loose brick behind the Mabuhay Gardens, familiar to so many people as a Filipino restaurant that had become sort of a punk rock you know crazy plays patty smith all these people would come and play there but there was a loose brick in the alley behind it tell us about that
4: sure so in that alley was a brick and if you moved the brick out behind it was a syringe and all of the people who were in the punk scene who shot drugs and knew about this little hiding spot used that one single syringe And a woman who was working in HIV prevention heard about this from one of her sources. And she was just like, oh, my God, all these kids are going to die. We have to do something. We can't just sit here and let this happen. Sheila Murphy was working as a youth outreach worker. And she would hang out in line with all the punks waiting to go to the club. And she heard from one of them that there was this loose brick and behind the brick, was a syringe that if you were so inclined, you could use, and then you were supposed to put it back and leave it for the next person. Now, in the age of HIV, this was obviously incredibly dangerous. And Sheila had come to know and really like the teens she was working on outreach with. And she was like, oh my God, they're all going to die. We have to do something. We can't just be observing this scene. We need to actually give them an intervention that can help them stay safe.
0: So what did she do?
4: So she went back to her office, which was in Haight-Ashbury. She went back there and she told her bosses about this syringe and about the kids she was working with. And she was like a kind of low level person at that point, but she managed to get everybody together. And she was like, look, we've got to do something. We can't get needles legalized overnight, but maybe we can find a way to disinfect them. And so they went through this whole process. Well, can we try hydrogen peroxide? Well, that degrades very quickly. What about alcohol? Well, people might shoot the alcohol and they might use alcohol that is meant for drinking and that might not work. So they arrived at bleach. And oddly enough, although it is definitely not recommended, if you shoot a small amount of bleach, it won't kill you. Uh, you will smell like a laundry room, but it won't kill you. It'll be very unpleasant. Again, it won't kill you. So they knew that if people accidentally, you know, they were sloppy, they were high, and they left a little bleach in there, that they would be okay. So knowing that and knowing that it definitely did kill HIV, they began to make a public information campaign. And one of the people who was involved became a superhero known as Bleach Man. And so he caped up and he put a like giant fake bleach bottle over his head and he would go to neighborhoods like the Tenderloin with this giant syringe and in his red cape and he would teach people how to protect themselves if they had to share needles. And this actually, there were ads for this that appeared on late night TV in San Francisco. In New York, meanwhile, where we had at least 200,000 IV drug users, we were doing absolutely nothing. And if, if the woman who I met hadn't been visiting to get my friend into rehab, I probably would have gotten HIV because he was positive and I was using needles with him, and I didn't even know I was at risk for AIDS. So, as soon as I learned that, oh my God, you know, I'm at risk, I was very, very, very compulsive about the way I use my needles. And so, bleach became part of the compulsive ritual that was every time I'm doing it. And so, fortunately for me, that meant that when I did get into recovery, I was not HIV positive and I was still very angry and I wanted to do something because I just thought that why would we let all these people die when we can save them? Why would we let them infect their children and their partners and, you know, anybody they have sex with because we just don't care? I mean, bleach is cheap. There was all kinds of debate over the better way of dealing with this because there's no risk if you don't share at all. So having clean needles is better than using bleach, but we knew that it would take a long fight to get clean needles legal. And so I tell some of the story of that in the book, but it was kind of amazing thing because all these activists in different cities went out and got themselves arrested in order to challenge the law. And in New York, it was a kind of amazing thing. So eight people from ACT UP And a guy named John Parker, who was called the Johnny Appleseed of Needles, because he went up and down the East Coast, like deliberately getting arrested in order to challenge these laws. And so the way they challenged the law was there's a defense called the necessity defense. And they basically argued that it is necessary to public health that we break this law. And there was this amazing trial, which I was had the honor to be there and writing about. And they argued this case in front of this judge. The judge had previously seen a different case where ACT UP was trying to use necessity defense and had denied it. Um, she had also, one of their witnesses was the former health commissioner of New York City who had really, ACT UP really harassed this guy. They put signs all over the city saying he has blood on his hands and they like yelled at him and everything like this. But for the issue of needle exchange, they were on the same side, and he knew it was the right thing to do. And he went to the trial and he testified about how these act up people and John Parker are just like John Snow, who is one of the pioneers of public health, and who in uh, I believe it was London, yeah, in London there was a cholera outbreak, and he took the handle off a of pump where the contaminated water was coming from so people couldn't get their drinking water from it and that stopped the epidemic and he mapped it and figured out that people who didn't use that pump that's why he decided to take it off so anyway it was um you know he was comparing uh these activists to like one of the great heroes of public health and there was also testimony from the defendants themselves um some of whom were people in recovery and One of them, a trans woman named Catherine Otter, was talking about how she would go to meetings of 12-step groups and people would talk about being HIV positive and she would just be so sad that they didn't have the information or the equipment that they had needed in order to protect themselves. And so that was her reason why she joined the activists. There was also a nurse who participated And she was just outraged that the medical profession had not done anything and had not done this civil disobedience. So she wanted to be there and represent the medical profession. Uh, So there was like, it was a really diverse group of people. They were very, very committed because they could have um, gone to jail.
0: You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Maya Solovitz. You may well know her from one of her eight books, including Unbroken Brain and The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog. Or you may have read her work in such publications as The New York Times, The Washington Post, Scientific American, and The Atlantic. She's here today with Undoing Drugs, The Untold Story of Harm Reduction, and The Future of Addiction. Well, let's move forward a number of decades to today and We're going to get to the technology and the algorithms and the databases. Now, what is this NARCS Care Database?
4: Right. So this is an algorithm which is used to try to predict which patients will become addicted if you prescribe opioids to them. The problem with it is that it doesn't take into account, for example, that you have already taken opioids successfully without addiction for 20 years. But it does know that you've been sexually abused, and that is genuinely a risk factor for opioid addiction. So it will tag you, and then, you know, you have been suffering with chronic pain for a really, really long time. Suddenly, now you can't get your medication anymore.
0: Who is it tracking? Anyone? So it tracks all of us.
4: This is the thing. If you have any prescription for any controlled substance, you are in something called a prescription drug monitoring database. And they used to be localized to the state, but now there's a national network of them. So you can't go, you know, from California to New Jersey and get different drugs um, from different doctors without them knowing because now they can check nationally, not just locally. Not that you'd necessarily go from California to
0: New Jersey. But that, that's pretty intense doctor shopping, <laughs> 3,000 miles. <laughs> yes, saying.
4: all right. Let's just say New York to New Jersey. But <laughs> yeah, um, so it's now a national database. And every time you get an opioid for dental pain, or if you take stimulants for ADHD, or if you take benzodiazepines for anxiety, you are listed in this database. But you're not the only person or creature that is listed in this database. If your pet takes Valium or has opioids because your pet is dying, that counts against you too. So some of the patients that I talked with actually were flagged by this algorithm to not receive their medications because they had very complex medically ill pets.
0: Now, let me ask you this. Who has access to that database?
4: Well, this is the thing. In some states, the police can act access it without a warrant. In some states, the DEA and the police can access it without a warrant. Uh, most medical professionals have access to it. And there have been cases, for example, where police were just like messing around, Ah, oh, let's look up our friends on this. you know. So it's really not very well controlled. That is technically illegal, but because of the large number of people across agencies that have access to this incredibly personal data, it is not good.
0: Now, you wrote in Wired magazine in the August 2021 issue called The Pain Was Unbearable. So why did doctors turn her away? And it's the story of a woman who in, in the article is named Catherine. What happened to Catherine?
4: So Catherine has endometriosis.
0: Very, very common, very common uh, situation with women. Yeah.
4: And it's a very painful thing because basically cells from your uterus grow all over your abdomen and then they cramp when you get your period. So it's really painful and they can stick to other organs. And it's, it's just a really difficult to treat and difficult to diagnose condition. Anyway, at this point, she already knew that she had it. And she had previously, one of the things that endometriosis can also do is cause ovarian cysts. And these are usually not a problem, but they can actually be life-threatening in certain circumstances. So she went to the hospital to try to find out what was going on with her especially intense pain during this time. And for a couple of days, everything was fine. They gave her opioids. The idea was that when the pain had come down to a normal level, and if she hadn't grown another cyst, she would just be released. But instead, somebody looked her up on the NARCS Care database, and suddenly everyone's attitude towards her changed. And they basically said, You have such a high score on this. You don't know what's going on. We don't think, you know, they basically did everything but call her an addict to her face. And they said, People with your condition, you know, they just treated her terribly. And she decided she discharged herself because she was not getting any more help at the hospital than she would have at home and you know it was just awful and then of course having had this terrible experience she wanted to figure out what happened and and try to fight back and you know try to make sure that she could get pain relief if she needed it again because this is a chronic condition and she discovered this Narc's Care score and she discovered this world of patients who had had similar experiences And she worked out that part of her problem must have been the fact that she has these two medically complex dogs. And for some reason, dogs require very high doses of drugs like Valium. And so to the database, it looked like she was getting a lot of benzos from a lot of different doctors when in fact she was just going to the vet for the dog and going to her own doctor for herself.
0: So many different questions. I don't quite know where to start. First of all, can you find out your own score? In some states, maybe.
4: There is absolutely no regulation on this, and there is no way to appeal if your score is bad in many instances. I I talked to a man who had opioid addiction, and he also had a long history of prior chronic pain. And he's currently on buprenorphine, which is the standard of care medication for opioid addiction. And one day he goes to the pharmacy and they say, oh, we can't fill this prescription for you. You have too high a narc scare score. And the sick irony of this is that buprenorphine cuts your risk of dying from overdose by about 50% and they are denying him his buprenorphine script because he has a high risk of addiction according to the algorithm. So in order to prevent him from overdosing, they are putting him at high risk of overdosing. It's a metaphor for the entire way we've been dealing with the opioid crisis. We've assumed that if we just identify these bad people and throw them out of the medical system, then we'll prevent addiction and we will prevent overdose. And instead, of course, what happens when you cut off the supply of a drug to one person with addiction? They are going to look for the drug elsewhere because people with addiction aren't dumb. We know that we need to have multiple sources of drugs when we are in an illegal market. So if we can't get it from the doctor, we'll get it from the street. And if you look at what happened, we have cut the rate of opioid prescribing by 60 percent since 2011. And yet during that same time, the overdose rate doubled because, of course, people were going to street heroin, which is extremely contaminated with fentanyl at the moment. And so you took people out of the frying pan into the fire rather than actually providing help for them.
0: Now, let's get to the data portion of this. It's the pharmacies reporting the prescriptions to the state. And so the state has a some kind of a registration monitoring system. Each state does. But that we're not talking about reporting it to the federal government. There is a company that keeps coming up again and again. It's the only one I really can find that has ha, sort of dominates the market. Is it called APRIS, A-P-P-R-I-S-S? Is that how you pronounce it?
4: Uh, that is my best guess to its pronunciation as well, yes.
0: And tell us about APRIS and and how how large is it? I mean, how what how far does this extend in term of its service?
4: So APRIS basically services nearly every prescription drug monitoring system in the United States. Some of them use Narc's Care and some of them use a variant of Narc's Care called the Overdose Risk Score. And it's not very clear who does what but they clearly have a really large reach. And NARCS Care and this other score are also widely used in medical record systems. So for example, at Mass General at Harvard, you can look up your patient and when you look up their record, you can see their NARCS Care score within it. And I've spoken to doctors there And they often get flagged by this because not only are patients judged by algorithms, but the doctors are judged by algorithms because if they prescribe too much, then the system will spit out a note and say, hey, you're over-prescribing, even if you happen to be a pain specialist and you're being compared to somebody who's in, you know, auto-laryngology or something, you know. So it is, it just, It takes a very, very complex social problem and tries to boil it down to a number, and that just doesn't work.
0: Now, with any predictive tool, uh, there are false positives, there are false negatives. Do we have any sense of what they are?
4: Well, this seems to have an enormous amount of both.
0: I've been speaking with Maya Salovitz, the author of Undoing Drugs, The Untold Story of Harm Reduction and the future of addiction. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, we'll hear from Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent, Dr. Daniel Kraft. Digital health is maturing. Stay with us. listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Maya Salovitz about undoing drugs, the untold story of harm reduction, and the future of addiction.
4: One researcher uh, who got her PhD from MIT, and I believe she's at Northeastern now, she studied these kinds of algorithms. And she found that basically, it was no better than chance in terms of predicting whose trajectory would change if they got a prescription versus if they didn't get a prescription. Because the problem is, this is looking at your lifetime risk. And that is only very mildly influenced by whether you get a prescription now or later. Because the biggest risk factors for addiction have to do with things like, were you traumatized as a child? What kind of exposure to drugs do you have? Do you have mental illness? Now, this does not mean that people with risk factors should never get opioids, because just like everyone else, people with mental illness and people with trauma histories also can have severe pain. The thing is that we have this false idea that exposure turns people into zombies. And so what was going to happen to Catherine in the hospital if she got opioids? Was she going to like grow a drug dealer when she came out of there? Like, How was she going to get extra if she wanted it? She wasn't going to be able to like take it out of the hospital with her. So the idea is basically that if you get exposed to these things, you are just in command under their command and you cannot have any more free will once you have exposure. But that's not the way addiction works. Addiction is a complex thing that needs to be learned over a course of a period of time. And if you just get a single exposure to an opioid, even if it is the best experience of your life, that doesn't give you the capacity to go buy opioids on the street.
0: It also occurs to me, your score has to go up if the database keeps getting asked or there's more added to the database. Uh, A pharmacy refuses to fill your prescription. So you go to another one who refuses to go to another one. Every ask at a pharmacy has to be recorded in this database. So it's it's just a it's a it's a cycle of building. You've created your own pattern. But I also understand 43 percent of U.S. medical clinics now refuse to see new patients who require opioids.
4: Yeah. And I think this is the undertold story of the overdose crisis. We just assumed that everybody who was given opioids didn't need them and that opioids never work for chronic pain. And this is not true. There are just some forms of chronic pain where opioids are the only thing that worked. And these people have tried everything. And yet we decided that, okay, well, opioids are bad. we got to cut access to them and we don't care if people have pain, they should just gut it out. And what has happened is there's new research that just came out, I think in the journal of the American Medical Association, which shows that If you reduce somebody's opioid prescription and they've been on for a long time, you double to quadruple their risk of overdose or coming to the emergency room with a mental health crisis or suicide. So it's really bad. And the thing is, there's about four to eight million people in America who currently take opioids long term for chronic pain. And tens of thousands of them have been subject to these policies of either cutting them off entirely and then they can't find another doctor because nobody wants to see them, um, or slowly lowering their doses so the doctor can get their numbers down. And they become more disabled, they are at higher risk of suicide, and yes, they're also at higher risk of going to the street to get the drugs, and then they become at higher risk of overdose.
0: You write that policymakers have focused relentlessly on reducing medical opioid use. What's wrong with that, other, other than what you've just said?
4: <laughs> the problem is that like, we have this very simplistic idea that drugs cause addiction. But what actually happens, for example, during the opioid crisis, we had this idea that the evil pharmaceutical companies hooked the greedy doctors who hooked their patients. And what actually happened was 80% of people who misuse prescription opioids don't have a prescription for them. So they are basically people who are already recreationally using multiple kinds of drugs, typically including cocaine and amphetamine. So it's not just your average pot smoker. Um, So this group of people is seeking drugs. And yeah, when you look at a doctor's practice who prescribes a lot of opioids, they're gonna end up with a lot of people with addiction because just like bank robbers, they go where the thing they want is. And it looks like the doctor caused the addiction when, in fact, the doctor attracted the people with pre-existing addictions. And they were also trying to be a compassionate person treating pain. Now, this is not to say that there was no overprescribing. There was certainly overprescribing. But what happened mostly was overprescribing for acute pain. So you have surgery, you get you know 60 OxyContin, you leave them in the medicine cabinet in case you break your leg. And then five years later, your teenager gets into them. That's where this problem comes from, not from chronic pain patients who, you know, they're monitored up the wazoo. They have to have urine tests. They have to come in every month. They have all kinds of checks on them. But the the acute pain, ah, you know, you just had wisdom teeth here because the doctors don't want to get that phone call in the middle of the night. So they give you extra and nobody wants to throw away the extra because what if they can't get it? So the I mean the irony is of course that like these are the most super addictive drugs in the world and yet everybody has leftovers.
0: It's interesting because I've just recently had some surgery and I was given, you know, uh, like, well, here's a few pain pills you may need them. And of course, as, as you've predicted, I was like, look at all these pain pills. You know, So I actually took a couple in the, for a day or two that didn't need them. And I was like, what am I going to do with these? I know I can't flush them down the toilet. They're endocrine disruptors. We don't want them in the water system. And, uh, uh which is a whole other show and a great show, by the way. Um, uh, and I was in at, a uh, you know a, a chain retail f- drugstore, and I saw right by the pharmacy this thing saying you can put your you unused prescriptions in here, and I said, great. You know it was like a real lockbox, like you like you're 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 putting you're posting a a a, a package at the U.S. Post Office. You know it goes clunk, and that's it's all in. You know and. Um, I put it in and it didn't occur to me till I read your book. It's like, do you think anybody tracked it so they took it off my score you know, <laughs> that I turned it in? You know, That is a
4: good point. And I think, you know, what a very simple way of dealing with this problem that we have really not done enough is simply to create lock boxes for pharmaceuticals that people have in their house. And so that way, Yes, the teenagers might still get into them if they're really committed to the idea, but if they're really committed to the idea, they already have a problem. Um, but if you do that, the sort of casual experimentation kind of thing is much less likely to happen and you can reduce the exposure that way. But what we really need to keep in mind is that addiction is a complex behavioral disorder. Most people who take drugs never become addicted. and the people who do become addicted tend to have mental health problems, trauma, and despair. People with addiction are looking for something to fix them, and they're not happy. You don't typically have a person whose life is going well, and suddenly they get exposed to opioids, and then everything goes down the toilet. What tends to happen is that somebody's having a great deal of difficulty with something, or they have some trauma that is being triggered by some new experience that reminds them of their childhood. And then they get exposed, or they deliberately expose themselves and they find out that, wow, this works. This makes me feel okay. This makes me feel warm, safe, and loved because opioids are the chemicals that bond us to each other. Like there's a hormone called oxytocin that connects us so that if I am with my mom or my husband or somebody I really care about, I get this little hit of oxytocin and that creates a memory of that person. And then that memory and that connection with that person will release natural opioids in my brain. And so otherwise oxytocin would get you high. Oxycontin gets you high. Oxytocin does not get you high, but oxytocin is what connects our memories of our loved ones to the opioid experience. And that means when we lose our loved ones, we grieve and we have withdrawal and we are sad and stressed. And when we're with our loved ones and the relationship is good and connected, we feel warm, safe, and loved. And and this is why People who are socially isolated are especially at risk for opioid addiction. And, you know, we just don't look at any of this complexity. We simply say, we'll take away the drugs and we'll fix it. And in fact, what you end up doing is creating more harm for people. And and that's why I wanted to write about harm reduction, because it is a revolutionary idea within drug policy that what we should focus on is reducing harm, not stopping people from getting high.
0: Now I checked the CDC, NIH, American Medical Association, and like six or seven other sites. And I have four different descriptions of what addiction is. One called addiction, a disease, one called addiction, a disease of the brain. Another called it a developmental disease and another, a developmental disorder. And to the lay boy, you go a long way when you started out with a disease and you ended up with a developmental disorder. Could you parse that at all for me?
4: Absolutely. So I see addiction as a developmental disorder that is marked by compulsive behavior in the face of negative consequences. And developmental disorders are conditions that unfold over the course of maturation. So for example, if you have autism, the symptoms may show up really early but if you have schizophrenia, they may not show up till you are in your teens or 20s. And with addiction, this tends to happen in the teens and early 20s when about 90% of mental illness actually begins to manifest itself. So during the course of your development, you've been exposed to various experiences that interact with your genes. And so if I have had a traumatic childhood or if I have a genetic predisposition to be like incredibly anxious, and then I need a drug that um, allows me to finally feel okay, I am at much higher risk than somebody whose life is fine and they experience some euphoria and they're like, oh, that's kind of nice, but I'm not worth, you know, giving up my life for. And so seeing as a developmental disorder makes you recognize how important learning is in addiction. Because without learning, you can't be addicted. You can have like love at first sight, and addiction is very similar to falling in love with a drug rather than a person. And you can know the first time is great and feel really attached right away. But until you repeat that behavior and really build in the connection, you are not addicted. And this is also why babies can't be addicted because babies, even if they were exposed to drugs in the womb, they don't know whether they need a diaper change or heroin. They just don't know. So until you know what you're addicted to, you can't seek it and crave it. And so, you know, I mean, this is also why people can come out of the hospital with physical dependence on opioids and think they have the flu and just go on with their lives when actually they just underwent withdrawal.
0: Now, I have two more questions. One is, you clearly lived a portion of this and then went to recovery. Was there an epiphany that that finally made the difference or was your... Your, your choice to come through to recovery, did that happen over time?
4: So both. I think it, it is both. It's like suddenly or slowly and then suddenly, as Hemingway said, um, I think he was saying this about going bankrupt. Um, with addiction um, and with recovery, part of my recovery started when I learned to use bleach and I learned to use clean needles and I learned to be healthier in that way. And then another part of my recovery happened when I realized that I'm 80 pounds, I'm shooting up 40 times a day, this is not good, I need help. I, and then I went into a rehab and I had a very traditional recovery for probably the first five to seven years. So it's mostly a process, but we love to see it as an epiphany. And we love to think that you know somebody will just see the light and then change their behavior what harm reduction says is that when you're learning a new skill, like how it, how to stay in recovery, you're gonna make mistakes. You're not gonna learn to play piano without making mistakes. You're gonna be terrible at first, and you're going to slip up and you're going to have all kinds of difficulties. But if you keep at it and you keep working at it, you do get better. And over time, you can learn to not have uh, You know, over time, you can just get into a recovery that lasts.
0: I was very taken with that. Some of the smallest things we do can sometimes make a tremendous difference. Um, And there's so many things in your book. But could you talk about just pick two or three small things that we might change as individuals and or societally that could make, as you write, a tremendous difference?
4: Well, one of the things is simply being kind. People with addiction are generally treated with disdain and people walk on the other side of the street to avoid them. And they're generally told you can't be here unless you stop. If you smile at somebody and you say, I believe you're worth it, I want you to live. I don't care if you're still using, I just want you to live. And that's what needle exchange and giving out bleach and naloxone for reversing overdose and all these harm reduction interventions basically say, I value you exactly as you are. And when somebody values you exactly as you are, that opens the door to change because you probably haven't been valuing yourself very much. If you were shooting up 40 times a day and you have been seen as the lowest of low by the rest of the world for so long that if somebody sees a little spark in you and just smiles and and just treats you like a human being with dignity, that can result in this enormous change. And it you know, often doesn't happen overnight. And people's recovery can look very different. Some people will be totally abstinent. Some people will use some substances and not others. Some people will have periods of binges, whatever it is. But over time, they will learn to get better. And one of the things that I've really seen just working with people with addiction is how valuable people are. And I mean, I think about Michael K. Williams, the actor who recently died of an overdose. We lost a tremendous amount when we lost him. And if we had cared more and done more harm reduction, for example, him having access to fentanyl test strips that could have told him that that drug was poison, or even better, having access to a safe supply so that while they're actively using and are just not interested in stopping, we keep them alive as they go through the process of getting better. It's just so sad.
0: Well, Maya, thank you so much for coming in. A fascinating book. We haven't even touched all parts of it. I hope you come back and see us again.
4: We'd love to do that. Thank you, too.
0: My guest today is Maya Salovitz. The book is Undoing Drugs, The Untold Story of Harm Reduction and the Future of Addiction. It's published by Hachette Go. Her August 2021 article, The Pain Was Unbearable, So Why Did Doctors Turn Her Away, is available at Wired.com. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. All this data, our personal sports tech and digital watches are collecting about us. Tech Nation Health chief correspondent, Dr. Daniel Kraft, wants us to shift our thinking from the so-called quantified self to a more integrated concept of quantified health.
3: Digital health is something that's really accelerated in the time of COVID and, and moving very quickly. It often used to be curled connected health or mobile health or digital health, I think we will just... So just call things health, we don't call uh, our banking digital banking, or when we get our movies live streamed, digital movies or entertainment. But the idea is that now we can start to, in digital health broadly, sort of collect data in new ways. It could be from your smartwatch, from your environment, from public health elements, often integrate that data into information and deliver that often in the form of an application or software package. So even it could be informational, but even Therapeutic, the idea of digital therapeutics are here where you won't prescribe a drug or a device, you but prescribe an app or a video game for the brain that in some cases now can treat children with ADHD or be combined with a drug to help manage therapy. So a lot is happening in the space. And what's particularly interesting are the big players from Google uh, with its spin out Verily to Amazon, uh, to Apple, to Facebook are all getting into digital health. And some recent announcements just show the power of this. Uh, Apple... Uh, at the recent developers conference, uh, came up with some new uh, new elements that will be on our smartphones and smartwatches for those of us who are Apple uh, wearers. Um, one of them is the fact that what's powerful about digital health is not just having lots of fragments and lots of ways of collecting your steps or your sleep information, but ways to make sense of that and integrate it. And uh, on on Apple phones, we have a Health Kit on. On Android platforms or something called um, Common Health, where we're able to now integrate everything from data from our smart scales to our smart watches uh, to our meditation apps. And uh, Apple recently announced new ways to enhance data sharing. So, when you've collected that data uh, on your smartphone through multiple apps and wearables and other elements, you can now better share that. Into your what's called an EHR electronic health record uh, that many hospitals have, like epic and Cerner all scripts that's where much of our health data often is reside resides or often is siloed. The key thing is not to have siloed data on your smartphone but to connect that often quantified self data and shift that to quantified health so that's something that uh that Apple has uh for example been improving its sort of data flow, and um, that's going to be an important part for all of our, our health and systems around the world, not just collecting the data and having data for the sake of data, but the insights that can be gleaned, that can be shared with the individual, the user, the human, the patient, but, but more relevantly with their healthcare system, sometimes to the AI or the chatbot, uh, sometimes to a public health system so that we can really collect and make sense of the data and accelerate better forms of prevention, diagnostics, therapy, and public health.
0: You know, I was uh, a friend of mine has diabetes and adult onset diabetes so this was new to her and uh, she was using an app in which you take a picture of your what you're eating and of course you have to guess how much uh your insulin you need um and and inject that and it was amazing she was showing me how she had misjudged so many times and yet She could see it right there on the screen over time, her response. It went so fast. In fact, I don't know what she ate. She goes, let's watch it. (laughs) Let's watch it now. And it's going up. And uh, so much of what's on our phones or our watches or any of the things that track us together can work together to see how we do it, and if we change behavior, do things change. I think we're sort of moved into that category now. Digital health is truly mature.
3: Right, and we've seen uh, now the ability for each of us, whether we're diabetic or not, to put a little CGM, continuous glucose monitor, patch on our skin, wear it for a couple of weeks, and in real time, watch our response to uh, drinking that soda or having a vegetarian meal and can get a response, a kind of our personal sort of food print, how we respond to different diets and foods or stress. And for a diabetic patient, particularly a type 1 diabetic, that is, it's life-saving information to know what their blood sugar is, often continuously as opposed to having to have stick their finger multiple times a day. And then not just a kind of rule of thumb and how many insulin units should I take based on my diet and activity, but to see that in real time and adjust. In many cases, sort of the analog, sort of the, the engine, the often AI-empowered engine is helping the patient understand what might be the best dose. We now have the connection between a continuous glucose monitor and the insulin pump, kind of like an artificial pancreas. And that's part of this era of, era of digital health as well. Um, all the way to, you know, I'm wearing right now as we speak, this little, you know, aura ring. It's uh, basically a, a sensor that fits on my finger and tracks my steps, my respiratory rate, my temperature, uh, my heart rate variability. So when I wake up in the morning, I don't just sort of see the data of my sleep, but I get a synthesized score. It gives me a readiness score. How ready am I to take on that day? Or coaching, maybe about getting to bed earlier if I'm having a regular bedtime. So digital health is a pretty broad area. Where it's exciting for me as a clinician is that we can start to potentially prescribe digital health tools. And I've actually just launched a new platform called digital.health. That's the domain. Digital.health, more for clinicians, but to start to be able to find the solutions that might match a patient. It might be a, an app for a patient with anxiety to manage their, uh, their anxiety and have them meditate. It might be an app for a diabetes patient, patient to better understand their diet or to manage their blood sugar medications. It might be applications or uh, a wearable uh, blood pressure cuff that might be used to manage a patient with challenging uh, hypertension. So, you know, the challenge is not having the new digital health tool solution, but how do we end up regulating it and the FDA is doing a pretty good job with a new platform called uh, looking at software as a medical device to how do we pay for it? So some of the new health insurance plans are paying for digital health solutions. And then how do we not just collect the data, but let it flow back to the individual, the consumer, the patient, but also to the clinical team so we can make sense of that in real time. And using the layer of AI, machine learning, and analytics, make some of that data seamless and synthesized into the workflow of, of the patient and the, and the caregiver
0: you do a lot of work in how do you uh, on the care of the care of patients how do you talk to them how do they how do you talk to their families because you often deal with pediatric fa- patients but the real thorn in the side is compliance when the patient goes away and they or their family have to really adhere to compliance and you're trying to guess what happened didn't happen And then, you know, once you get that information in this brave new world, what are you going to do when they don't comply? How do you deal with that? That is a big challenge.
3: Yeah, it's a challenge and the opportunity. The challenge is we're still practicing this sort of sick care model of very intermittent data that we only usually collect in the four walls of the clinic or the hospital and shifting to much more continuous hopefully personalized, proactive data that I as a clinician can see, how is my patient doing? Uh, Let's say they were sent home after a a COVID uh, hospitalization or after a total hip replacement. Are they walking more as we might expect them, which we can tell from their low-cost wearable, or are they walking less? Something might be going wrong. They're not recovering as expected. We might be able to tell from their... Application that tracks their medicines, uh, whether they took their meds and recorded that they took it. Um, so all these dots are starting to be connected. It's a bit of a challenge for caregivers to not have to deal with more, you know, uh, unstructured data coming at them. So we need to work this into our workflow. But we do have this opportunity, and part of it often is communication. You know, when you go home from a complex doctor's visit, particularly in the oncology world, do you remember hearing much after the word cancer? Another part that's coming, of course, in digital health is. You know, this explosion of wearables or incitables or invisibles, all these new ways to collect data from our bodies or from the sensors in our home, even our smart speakers, our smart mattresses. And again, not to just have the data, but to synthesize that into something meaningful to help the individual live a healthier life and and sleep better and get their exercise in, but also manage acute and chronic diseases in collaboration with their caregiver. And hopefully that we're all still sharing that information so it's crowdsourced and builds a better health knowledge network for any patient or any clinician around the world.
0: Well, you're going to have to warm me up to this one because I'm my mattress had better be dumb.
3: <laughs> well, dumb mattress. Dumb mattress is a fine?
0: That doesn't talk to anybody. It's a secret. It's all a big secret.
3: <laughs> but if you're still wearing your smartwatch, one of the things that Apple mentioned in their uh, new element is that the smartwatch will be to tell you more about your gait. Another thing is that these built-in motion sensors, these accelerometers, can tell you how even your steps are, the timing of steps, and can uh, theoretically start to predict who's at risk for a fall or having some early neurologic issue like Parkinson's. And the earlier we can pick up these diseases using our sort of digital breadcrumbs, our digital biomarkers, the better we'll be able to do... a smarter, faster diagnosis, and then hopefully intervene uh, before you have the fall or the heart attack or the stroke and really enter this age of continuous, proactive, personalized health, uh, not just medicine.
0: Okay. I put the watch on after I get up, but that mattress had better be dumb, Daniel, until you convince me otherwise. <laughs>
3: Thanks for coming in. Thanks, Mara.
0: Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent, Dr. Daniel Kraft, is a physician, scientist, and innovator. More information is available at danielcraftmd.net. For TechNation, I'm Moira Gunn.